we got the alternative energy free autonomy and welcome to the radioactive show produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the community radio network this radioactive show was produced and recorded on unceded Wurundjeri country give my respects to Wurundjeri elders past present and future always was always will be aboriginal land on Thursday, 23rd of March, Radioactive Show producer Michaela Stubbs and myself spoke with Ray Atchison in the 3CR studios. Ray is visiting from New York. They are a staunch disarmament and peace organiser and have been working on the treaty to pro- prohibit nuclear weapons since its inception. Ray is the director of Reaching Critical Will, which is the disarmament program of WILP, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Ray has published two books in recent years, Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy in 2021 and Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders and Cages in 2022. I start the discussion with Ray by recalling our previous Zoom interview in the midst of the 2020 pandemic and lockdowns. Hi Ray, it's a pleasure to have you on the Radioactive Show again and I think the last time that we spoke was in 2020 while we were both in lockdowns in Nam and Melbourne and you were in New York respectively and now here we are three years later in the studio which is very exciting in 3CR. Um, I remember that time we last spoke that you were describing the global pandemic as an opportunity to challenge some of the fundamental assumptions of many Western governments' spending priorities, particularly the gearing towards militarism at a time when healthcare and social services were so desperately needed. Starting with a big question, but what are your reflections on that three years on? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for having me back on the show. It is great to be back here in the 3CR studio and not on Zoom, um, oceans away from each other. Uh, but I think, you know, at that time when we were dealing with that, the early days of the pandemic and watching as arms manufacturers were being declared essential services in the United States and looking at the military budgets that were rising um, even in those early days of the pandemic as countries were um, dealing with the immediate effects of the health crisis and starting at that point to think about vaccines and starting to think about what kind of air filtration we would need and what kind of uh, mass production of masks and other protective gear we would need. And now, three years later, we've seen a retrenchment of military spending and of militarism. And it's been at the expense of all of the health needs that our countries and societies have so desperately needed throughout this throughout this three years. And instead of seeing, you know, mass overhaul of buildings for new filtration, instead of seeing affordable masks being given out, instead of seeing vaccines freely distributed around the world equitably, um, and instead of seeing now even any health protocols in place in most places in the world, instead we have new war, we have new weapons being developed, we have new contracts between militaries and universities, we have um, nuclear weapon modernization programs going on still. So we've seen a continuation of the same that we 
we saw in the midst of the beginning of the pandemic, and we've seen it actually get a lot worse. Um, the United States military budget has continued to rise um, throughout the pandemic, as have many other countries. And of course, weapon sales have been just astronomical in the context of Russia's war in Ukraine. Yes, um, it's a pretty dire picture. And I think you've just summarised across different aspects of milita- militarization, and then at, at the cost of other um, social services and our health and well-being. And we've definitely seen that in Australia as well. So if we take go to 2021, um, that was the year that you published your first book, Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy. And... It's a great title. How how are banning the bomb, of course, the nu- nuclear weapons and smashing the patriarchy inextricably linked in your view? Yeah, so the, the title is based around the idea that our systems of militarism um, and including nuclear weapons as kind of the leading edge of that system in terms of being genocidal weapons that can destroy an entire city um, with, with one individual weapon um, – that these these systems that have conceptualized militarism or nuclear weapons as necessary for security are really rooted in conceptions of power uh, through violence um, and strength through intimidation and domination over others. And feminist theory and queer theory have always approached um, that that sort of philosophy or culture as um, an offshoot of, say, militarized masculinities. And so, of course, we're not talking about, you know, men this, women that, or anything like that. But what we're talking about is the culture that suggests that um, in order to be a real man or to demonstrate masculine strength, you have to be willing and able to be violent. And so militarized masculinities are sort of looking at the the how that cultural conception of of strength and power in our own personal lives and in our societies then is implicated in international relations and international politics and what's become known as geostrategic stability and the nuclear deterrence theory and all of these grand conceptions of how the world is ordered in terms of power and in terms of, um, you know, might makes right at at its core. And so with this book, um, I was trying to explore and explain how the majority of countries and activists and the Red Cross and many others affected communities, survivors of nuclear testing and use, came together to prohibit nuclear weapons. And in doing so, really confronted a lot of these patriarchal norms about weapons possession, about the idea of security manifesting through power and violence, and instead taking a more cooperative, collaborative approach that demilitarizes uh, our approach to global politics. And so there's a lot bound up in the book. Obviously, it's a bit of a long read. Some of it is a little bit, um, you know, the details of the actual process of the negotiation. But a lot of it is also drawing in then these these theoretical frameworks and concepts that are behind um, the, the process to ban the bomb and the motivations for governments of the world to do so. And so... Just uh, for listeners, of course, you're talking about the process of um, reaching the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and which you and Wilpf and ICANN and 
many other organisations were uh, really involved with throughout. Um, perhaps we'll just go to that treaty briefly. How How is that treaty standing coming into 2023 and what are your hopes for next steps? So the treaty entered into force in 2021, um, which means that it got the 50 ratifications, national ratifications it needed to enter into force. Since then, we've seen an increasing number of countries sign and ratify the treaty. Um, and we're also at a point where the first meeting of states parties happened last year. So at that meeting, countries that are party to the treaty agreed on an action plan to implement the treaty's provisions moving forward. So the treaty has um, elements related to victim assistance and environmental remediation. Um, it has elements related to the gendered impacts of nuclear weapons and um, increasing gender diversity and other forms of diversity in nuclear disarmament efforts. It has um, some elements related to uh, the technical aspects of nuclear disarmament. And so the action plan that was agreed in the working groups that have been moving forward since uh, since 2022 have really been about setting up the systems to implement these provisions of the treaty and, of course, also to do outreach for the treaty's universalization. And so this remains the crux of the matter in many ways is getting more and more countries to sign on and in particular to get nuclear armed states or to get uh, nuclear armed state allies that currently do not support the treaty and that actually support the possession of nuclear weapons. So Australia, of course, is one of these, along with South Korea and Japan um, and the states of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. You're listening to The Radioactive Show and a conversation between myself, Crunch, Michaela Stubbs and disarmament organiser Ray Atchison. Ray has just spoken about the priority of bringing more state parties to sign the nuclear ban treaty, including states like Australia that align themselves with nuclear weapons holders such as the United States. To follow this pressing campaign in Australia, visit the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons at iCanw.org.au. Let's return to the conversation with Ray. We might return to um, the global context and in early 2022, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine and that war has continued until the present day. And you argue in an article published for Wilf that the crisis is the inevitable result of building a world order based on militarism. Can you elaborate what you mean by this world order based on militarism? Mm -hmm. It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, really, this this uh, retrenchment of military spending, the, um, the continued investment in tools of violence and structures of violence at the expense of everything else. So if, if you're spending... You know, in the United States, more than 50% of your national budget on weapons and wars. What is it? What's going to be your main export? What is going to be the national interest? And so it has become the military industrial complex leading US foreign policy. Um, and also largely domestic policy. And we can talk about the militarization within the United States as well. But um, externally, it's led to this situation 
for the U.S., but also for its allies and for its quote unquote, you know, adversaries um, that are set up to counter each other, basically. And so just as the U.S. has invested in the militarized uh, system, so have Russia and China and other countries that, um, you know, are in this lockstep battle with the United States for uh, dominance over the international system and influence over other countries in the world. And so... By continuing to invest um, in weapons and war at the expense of everything else, we've sort of created this inevitability of more war. And so I think it's important that we see the Russian invasion um, of Ukraine in that context, um, because one of the things as peace activists or as disarmament activists that we get confronted with is, well, we have to support Ukraine um, in this moment of, of standing up to Russia. And so peace activists are actually just apologists for Russia. If you talk about, you know, the arms sales, the, the um, incredible level of arms sales that we've seen, or um, if you talk about disarmament or demilitarization in this moment. And it's really this sort of it's a binary approach to this problem, right? And it, it ignores the fact that it is these governments that have all built this system together, leading to a situation where conflicts can only be solved through more violence, and that there are people and companies that are profiting of it. So, of course, they're going to drive forward the war. The the CEO of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin were very excited as the war in Ukraine got underway because their stock portfolios were ticking up very nicely as people were dying. Um, and so instead of relying on the system of international law, um, which Russia has egregiously violated in every moment of this conflict, from the invasion itself to the bombing of towns and cities to the use of cluster bombs and landmines to its threats to use nuclear weapons, every element of this conflict has been a violation of international law. But instead of looking to that body of work and the collective global governance that has also been built up over the over the time since the end of the Second World War. Um, we've instead just seen countries resort again and again. These powerful, quote unquote, powerful countries resort again and again to violence in order to um, dominate each other and the geostrategic environment. Yeah, well, I think um, that's exactly. Yeah, what we're seeing at play here um, in so-called Australia now. And, um, you know, you might have seen the news, newspapers headlines in the lead up to the big AUKUS uh, announcement of this enormous spend. Um, yeah, the likes of which we haven't ever seen before. Um, kind of laying the groundwork, spreading fear about China and, yeah, sort of talking about this idea as, yeah, an inevitability that there will be war with China in the future. And there just doesn't seem to be, um, yeah, certainly in the corporate media, a lot of questioning of that or any, um, yeah, and and additionally as you say like all those international treaties and commitments that are made under the united nations um it 
yeah, they'll they'll just make these announcements and not even address the fact that um, yeah, what what their that their actions are counter to those. Um, what kind of uh, yeah ways have you seen that the peace movement can kind of break through that narrative that is being yeah pursued by the government and corporations that want to keep things going like this yeah i think i think a big task for the peace movement is really to highlight the lie of inevitability right so what we're told um, is that it is inevitable that the U.S. and China are going to engage in some kind of conflict. And that in itself should give everybody pause. Like, really, this is what we actively want to build for, because actually by these investments, such as AUKUS and other maneuvers that the U.S. and, and its allies are taking, is actually provoking confrontation and conflict, right? So that is not inevitable. That is actively being created by by these governments. Um, and also, you know, China is also a heavily militarized state as well. So this isn't at all to say that, you know, uh, any of these conflicts are, are one side or the other's fault. But all these governments have invested in this approach to world politics, the, the might makes right approach to politics. And I think that um, so that's one element of it is that this is not an inevitable conflict, our governments are building it. The other um, sort of lie of inevitability is then that the only way to resolve the conflict is to invest in more militarism. So in order to counter some sort of perceived threat from China, we need to double down on what we've been doing for years now, since the end of World War II, as if that is going to change anything, right? So they keep doing the same things over and over and over again and investing more and more and more in the same structures of state violence instead of taking a step back and saying there must be a different approach that we can take in international relations that would avoid us uh, going into a massive war which could result in the end of life as we know it on this planet um, due to the threat of use of nuclear weapons in such a conflict. And so I think, yeah, pushing back on on the inevitability narrative is so important. Um, and we see this with all of our movement, um, movement-based projects. And it really speaks to the importance of organizing and of generating support um, for alternatives. So I'm thinking too, this is a little bit off the subject of AUKUS, but I'm thinking about this major um, piece of work that we're doing right now in the United States, which is to prevent the the building of this facility called Cop City in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's going to be a compound that um, will have international implications it's not a stretch of the imagination to um, think that Australian police might be involved in this too, because it's going to be a training center for police from across the U.S. and internationally. Um, but the the sort of Atlanta politicians have really built this up now as something that is inevitable. It is going to happen. Cop City will be built. And so the activists there have generated so much support from students, from faith leaders, from forest defenders and environmental activists, from 
um, police brutality and, and racial justice organizers. So, like, everybody's involved in this, in this fight to stop Cop City. Um, and one of the most successful elements, I think, of that work has then been pushing back on this lie that this facility will be built. And so one of their main, um, one of their main slogans is, Cop City will never be built. And they say that all the time. And I don't think we say that enough as activists. Like, I think, I think here in the, in the context of AUKUS saying these nuclear submarines will never be built. These nuclear submarines will never come to Australia. I think saying that and then doing the work, of course, to prevent it from happening um, is, is really important and a lesson that um, the peace movement at large can really draw upon. This is The Radioactive Show, and we're speaking to Ray Atchison. Next, Michaela asked Ray about whose voices are reported in the US about issues such as AUKUS, nuclear submarine deals, and US bases. Yeah, I would say, you know, in the United States, it's mostly, and I'm I'm guessing it's similar here, but it's, you know, the defense intelligence elite, which is mostly, you know, middle-aged white guys who are institutionalized in these centers of um, militarized thought and power, right? So they're the ones that are dominating the narrative about, again, the necessity and inevitability of conflict and um, of, of AUKUS and military alliances. And they just don't have any new ideas, you know? It's just, it's more of the same, and this is the way the world works, and we have to be realistic and rational, and um, we need to just keep doubling down on militarism as the solution to all of the problems that militarism causes. And it's just, it's just extraordinary that that continues to be the case. But I think, you know, when as activists, when we're trying to learn about AUKUS in the, in the United States, um, there is a big appetite to hear from First Nations in Australia and to hear from folks that are going to be implicated in the development of these weapons and affected by the deployment of these weapons. And I think, you know, another aspect of this um, AUKUS situation and the nuclear submarines in particular is really looking at the corporate involvement in it, right? So we're talking about $368 billion. So who's getting that money? Which corporations are getting that money? Um, I know in Australia, it's all been sold on the, the jobs element, right? So we have all the studies that we could possibly need that say that jobs in the weapons industry, they don't provide as much to the economy as jobs in pretty much any industry. Um, so we do know that. But I think generating the, that kind of information from the peace movement is going to be super Super useful. I think tracking which corporate entities, BAE systems, obviously will be involved, but which, who's actually, what are the subcontractors, um, uh, and what other companies are going to be profiting from this, and doing the divestment work around that. And that's been something that has been incredibly successful um, in relation to nuclear weapons, as well as cluster bombs and landmines, fossil fuels. So I think that's a whole stream of work that we're going to need to to open up as well. And 
the the reality of the impacts here um, in Australia around the nuclear waste that you were talking about, Michaela, and around the the deployment, the porting of these submarines at different different points, the influx of U.S. soldiers into Australia that we've already seen um, so much over the last however many years, um, and the the implications that has also for local communities. So I think these are all elements of the AUKUS arrangement that are going to need more our voices speaking out very loudly on to counter sort of the defense establishment. Defense, I put in quotes, obviously, the military establishment um, that dominates the narrative so far. Uh, Just taking off on that theme of um, the way that, yeah, like these companies and, for example, like the U.S. Embassy and Department of State uh, work with the people they see as the future leaders and run programs like the Australian American dialogue that that sort of enmeshes all those I- ideas. Uh, uh, yeah, and of course, so many U.S. defense companies now have uh, departments in our universities, and these companies are running programs <laughs> in you know schools. Uh, yeah, are there similar kind of programs that happen within the peace movement, like building leadership um, for the <laughs> the movement, or is this something you think we could do more of, like across, yeah, globally? Absolutely, I think that there's a lot of scope for that. Um, sort of training of, of peace movement as a counter recruitment to the military and to the the military industrial complex. I mean, this is a huge thing in, in the US too, right? The connections between the, the funding from the Pentagon directly, as well as from the weapons manufacturers that go into universities. And then there's kind of a pipeline of students, if you're in engineering or chemistry or physics or any kind of science program or computers or whatever, um, the lucrative jobs are, are in the military or with one of the weapons contractors. Um, and this is only increasing as we're seeing the development of autonomous weapons and weapons that include artificial intelligence and other high-tech gadgets, um, which are going to be really devastating if if built. But again, like Cop City and like AUKUS, they will not be built <laughs> if we have anything to do with it. So I think that, um, yeah, there, if, if there's ways to develop partnerships, transnational in particular, solidarity relationships amongst, um, you know, within student organizing and peace groups. I think that's just so crucial because we do need alternatives um, and we need we need folks to to understand also within international relations, political science programs, to think critically about what is inevitable and what is why the world is the way it is and um, what they need to be doing and thinking and organizing for in order to build up an alternative situation rather than just, you know, going from uni and getting a job at a think tank where they then perpetuate these myths about the world and this militarized worldview. So I don't know what the what the answer is exactly in order to build these programs, because, of course, at the crux of it all is money, right? That's that's the underlying factor that um, enables the military industrial complex to get its hooks into students. Um, but I think that 
as the world is facing these converging crises of climate change and militarism and pandemics and global poverty and inequality, I do think that there's more and more scope for younger folks to imagine alternatives because this this cannot be the world that they want to inherit, right? I mean, this is this is just tragedy after tragedy um, in our lifetimes, and so I think there's appetite to to build and work for and imagine and collaborate in ways that we haven't necessarily seen before. And so that's also where I find optimism and hope amidst all the bleak things that we've been talking about today is that I really, I really fundamentally do not see any of it as inevitable. I think there is a way out of this um, world that the militarized elite have built, and um, it will take a lot of people to get out of it and build the alternative, but unlocking our imaginations to do so is the, is the first piece of work that many of us have to do. Thank you to Ray Atchison, who spoke to Michaela and I in the 3CR studios. Ray is an organiser with Reaching Critical Will, author of Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy, and a second book, Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders and Cages. Ray has written extensively on disarmament issues through a feminist and abolitionist lens. Find their work at reachingcriticalwill.org. Support the work of ICANN to get Australia to sign on to the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. Visit icanw.org.au. This has been The Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. We give our thanks to the Nuclear Free Collective of Friends of the Earth, Melbourne, for their support of the show. You can podcast our show at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. And finally, I'm going to take Ray's advice and try it. The nuclear subs will never be built. The nuclear subs will never be built. Tune in next week. And here's to a nuclear-free future. Because we got the alternative energy. Right. On nuclear-free autonomy.